Hey, good morning, Bethel Church. All right. Yeah. Excited to be here in the in the company of such wonderful believers. We bring you greetings from Bethel Gary. Uh, we're thankful to God for the opportunity to come up here to uh, to Crown Point and to share with you on today. Uh, it's been a good day thus far, and uh, we're looking for God to continue to lead us, guide us, and direct us, and, and really have an opportunity to share in His Word. Uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, called Exiles, Studies in First Peter. And um, I pray that you have been as blessed in this series as uh, those who are on our pastoral team, as we have been in, in sharing this with you. Uh, it's, it's been a, a great, great series. And I don't know if you've really noticed this, that during the preaching of this series, it's almost seeming like world events and um, uh, events in our country are unfolding each week as we go into certain passages that uh, God wants us to be reminded of some things uh, in spite of what's going on in our world. Amen. Amen. So I don't know if you've noticed that, but it, it kind of seems that way to me and that that uh, uh, every week we're we're encouraged and reminded that in spite of what's happening in our world, uh, God has everything in control. So today we're going to be looking at first Peter, chapter three, uh, verses 18 through 22. And our subject today is the victorious Christ. We'll be talking about the victorious Christ. Now, there are some, uh, a reality that is drawn from all of our studies thus far in First Peter. And maybe you're here today and, and you haven't really been, been caught up on our, on our series, and that's okay. Uh, I'm going to kind of just present now a, a summary of some of the things we've learned thus far in our series in First Peter. And I think it's good to remind our hearts of, of what it is that, that, that the, the Word of God has said to us during the course of this series. Now, the first thing that we learned in this series in First Peter was that believers in Christ are not at home in this world. Now, that sets the tone for everything. Believers in Christ are not at home in this world. We are truly exiles. We are truly uh, living in a world where our citizenship does not reside. Our citizenship resides in the kingdom of God and not in the kingdom of man. Now, that, that's important because our expectations sometimes seem like that our citizenship really resides on earth. Amen. But in the tr truthfully, our citizenship does not reside in the kingdom of man. Our citizenship resides in the kingdom of God. Now, how do we know that we, we really are reminded that we're exiles? It's because uh, the, the world's reaction to the truth tells us that we are not at home. The world's uh, disdain and distaste for what is the truth of God's word reminds us that we are truly exiles as believers in Jesus Christ. It reminds us, 
it reminds us that that God's word, as as righteous and perfect as it is, is still being rejected by those who promote evil and sin in our world. Amen. Amen. So so we're not at home. And this is made clear by the world's reaction to truth. The other thing that we learned in this series is that believers will live the truth of the gospel through suffering in this world. Now, those two things kind of go together. If, if you're not at home, you're not at home, and the truth is rejected by the world, then the truth of the gospel message and the truth of gospel principles in your life mean that you will live that truth of the gospel through suffering in this world. We will suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, I just threw that in for free in case anybody here was worried about it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. We will suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of truth, of, of the principles of the, of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. We will suffer in this world. Jesus said it like this. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And he used the word will. Not you might have, not perhaps you'll have tribulation, but you will have tribulation in this world. And I'm so glad that he did not leave it right there. What a sobering message, you will have tribulation. But what a joyous message that comes with this. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Amen. Amen. How powerful is that for us? So we, we know, we know that we will live the truth of the gospel through suffering in this world. Here's another thing that we learned through this series. Believers in Christ demonstrate the faithfulness of God in our human relationships. We demonstrate the faithfulness of God in our human relations. Peter calls us, you remember, he calls us to, to have respect for governing authorities. So even those who are in elected office or in the context of Peter's day, the emperor, the king, those people, we are to have respect for governing authorities because there is no power on earth that is outside of the purview or the sight or the ordaining of God. God is in charge of everything. There's no king, no president, no congressman, nobody that is more powerful than God. And so we are to have respect for our governing authorities. Now, what, is, what does that look like in reality? Because honestly, folks, in the age of social media, we have to be careful as believers. Because sometimes some of the stuff that we post up on social media as believers says anything but respect for governing authorities. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be pleased with everything that governing authorities do. But what we ought to be doing beyond a shadow of a doubt is to be praying for those who have who are in, in, in uh, offices, elected offices in our country. Amen. We ought to be praying. We ought to be praying. And so 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 through governing authorities, we show forth through the way we treat, the way we react and respond to our governing authorities. We show the faithfulness of God. Now, not just through governing authorities, but we learned also that when we're in our place of employment at work, we show God's faithfulness by how we respond to people in our workplace. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I've had a couple of bosses that I was like, ugh. <laughs> you know, I'd rather have anybody be my boss but you. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, don't, don't look at me like I'm the only one. Come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've had circumstances, situations that there was a manager or a supervisor that we really just didn't get. It seemed like no matter what we would do, we would not be able to please that supervisor or that manager. But here's the thing. Peter is saying to us through, this, through uh, uh, these, his writing to exiles, he's saying that the way in which you handle that is important. Give yourself, make yourself subject, submit to them and show the patience and the faithfulness of God. And I learned, I learned that by going about the, my, my work and doing what God had placed me in that place to do, that I was being an example of God's grace and mercy and patience, even in the face of what you might call an unfair supervisor. And God has called us to that. And we show his faithfulness in doing that. And I knew it wasn't going to be any amens on that one. I just... <laughs> but not only through work, but we also show God's faithfulness through our home life. How we treat those closest to us is a demonstration of God's faithfulness in our lives. And so Peter talks about how wives are to respond and react to their husbands and how husbands are to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. Now, husbands, I'm going to help you out right here. Here's a good way to understand how to dwell with your wife according to knowledge. And this will make you a veteran, okay? You'll be like on point right now. Here it is right here. Anytime your wife asks you how she looks, the answer is, you are the most gorgeous creature that I have ever seen. Amen. Some of these guys look like they don't believe that. I mean, go ahead. Every husband right now, turn to your wife and tell her how good she looks right now. Just tell her, honey, you look gorgeous. You're, you're beautiful. See? See? She's, now, some of them look at you like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just saying that because the pastor said so, huh? <laughs> Ladies, take the compliment. Amen. <laughs> but see, that's what that's what we have to understand, that we show the faithfulness of God to to dwelling with our spouses as men, according to knowledge. Know your wife and you show forth the faithfulness of God when our home relationships are in the proper order. Amen. Amen. So here's another thing that we learned through this series that God calls believers to a different standard in times of conflict or in response to righteous suffering. We are called to a different and higher standard. Even though our flesh wants to repay evil for evil, we are called as believers to a standard that knows that the Lord has said, do not repay evil for evil. Vengeance is mine. Say the Lord, I will repay. We have to have the confidence in our Savior, in our Lord, that he will handle all of those situations. And not only has he, has he called us to that confidence, he's called us to an active, an active love that extends not just to people who love us, but extends also to our enemies. Jesus taught us very clearly, love your enemies. 
How often do we need to be reminded of how important that is? Love your enemies. Now, let me tell you something. It's hard to love someone that you think of as an enemy. That's tough. When I, I've read that passage for many years. I was reading that passage. I'm like, love that enemy. And I'm praying, Lord, how do I love somebody that I think of as an enemy? And, and, and the Lord just kind of led me to this thought. You know what? Stop thinking of them as an enemy. Stop thinking of them as an enemy and begin to think of them as image bearers of the Most High God. And show love even when people are not showing love to you. Love them even when they don't deserve it. You know why? Because no greater representation of that is than what Christ did for each one of us. He loved us when we didn't deserve it. The Bible says that, that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It was us who were the ungodly, who didn't deserve the sacrifice of Christ, but yet he loved us. So we, we learn that we have a different standard. We don't repay evil for evil, but we exchange evil for good. We love people that don't love us. And, and the last thing that we, we learned here through this series, we learned that the life we live as believers in Christ really matters. Your life as a believer really makes a difference. Now, you might think that I'm just little old me, and I don't know how my life can make a difference. But the way and the manner in which you live your life in this world your testimony is the sum total of God's grace in your life. And so as you share what God has done for you, you sharing the grace of God in your life, you're being an encouragement to somebody else. So I say to you, the way you live your life really matters. If you've got a testimony of great, great deliverance from something in your life that was destructive, don't be quiet about that. But tell everyone where you've come from. You have a life that matters. Your life, the way you live it, is a great witness to the power of the gospel. Now, everyone in here has what I call a BC. This is your before Christ. Amen. Amen. If you have a BC, just throw your hand up real fast. Don't let anybody see it. Just real fast. That's it. That's it. Just no. Because everybody thought you were always saved. And <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that we were saved from sin. And there was, there was sin that was permeating our, our entire existence. And it was, it, was, it was wrecking our lives. Even if we weren't really aware of the devastating effect of sin. God saved us from that. And your B.C. is a testimony of the power of the gospel, where you have come from, from whence you have come, is your testimony of the gospel, a powerful testimony, the witness of the gospel. And it's, and it's, that, it's that power that led the Apostle Paul to write very clearly in the book of Romans, in chapter 1, as he begins to really open up to the Roman believers, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul understood that who he was right then at that moment was not because of him. It was because of this wonderful transformation that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ brought into his life. The gospel is the most powerfully transformative message in the entire world that has ever been shared anywhere. Now, keep that in your mind because that's, that's going to be important even as we go through this today. So your life matters. Now, it's in the context of all that we have, have kind of summarized in this, in this uh, study of, of 1 Peter. It's in that context we approach this next section of this book. The section is a difficult passage that would take more time than we have today to really explain thoroughly, but it is an important passage from which we may glean important dynamics regarding the journey of believers as exiles in this world. Now I'm going to read this passage, so if you want to read along with me, that's fine. Uh, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 22 says this, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. Now, don't miss this last phrase. Having been subjected to him everything is under christ all authority all powers all things in this earth and in heaven are under christ how wonderful is that to know now while some of the meanings in this passage may be a bit obscure and even difficult to interpret, one thing is clear from the context of Peter's writing, and this one thing is easy for us to interpret, and that is this, to discern, we discern this, that Christ is victorious. When you read that everything is subject to him, that means that he is victorious. Everything is under a victorious Christ. If you don't get anything else today, get that Christ is victorious. Now, I'm going to tell you how important that is. Watch this now. Now, I want you to look at your neighbor. And, and yes, look at them. Look at them. They look good just like you do. Look at your neighbor. Say neighbor. Come on, say it like you mean Neighbor. Christ is victorious. Oh, didn't that feel good? Didn't that feel good? Listen, if, if the Bears scored a touchdown and you were at the stadium, you wouldn't be talking about, neighbor, Christ is victorious. <laughs> oh, the Bears scored a touchdown. Yippee. 
60,000 people would be on their feet in Soldier Field talking about Christ or talking about the Bears scoring a touchdown. We have people in the house of God who got up this morning, came down here to worship the Lord, and we can barely utter Christ is victorious. There we go. That's what it looks like. Now, I'm going to give you a chance. Take 10 seconds and just celebrate the victory of Christ by giving God a hand clap. Come on! A victorious Christ! A victorious Christ! Yeah! That's right! That's right! Let the world know how we roll. Awesome. Awesome. What a... Now, don't you feel better because you, this, this is who we are as believers. We don't have to be subject to the world. We serve a victorious Christ. Watch this now. It is upon this glorious truth of a victorious Christ that we must, as believers, rest our hopes and even our very lives. Imagine what life would be like for just a moment if we did not have the truth of a victorious Christ. Imagine what our lives would be like if we didn't have anywhere we could go to celebrate a victorious Christ. See, current world events... And you'd have to be under a rock somewhere not to notice what's going on in our world today. Current world events are designed by Satan to destroy the hope of every true believer. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I, when I heard the ruling of the Supreme Court, yes, I, my heart got heavy for a moment. And then I remembered something. Christ is victorious. Yeah, somebody got it right there. That's Christ is victorious. Why am I getting discouraged and depressed by what man has done when I serve a risen and true and victorious Savior that has all power in his hand? <laughs> now listen, imagine what it would be like, though. Just for a moment, I want to walk you through that. Without a victorious Christ. Without a victorious Christ, we would be left to think that there is no cure for racism and the tension of racial problems. Without a victorious Christ in our world, what would it be like if no one spoke of a freedom that exists in Christ, which not only destroys the psychological bondage of racism, but it also encourages and saves and delivers the one who is the oppressor? Yeah. People don't understand me, so I'm going to help you. I am the freest black man in America. Amen. There, there may be black people that, that are just as free as me, but nobody is more free than me. Because my freedom does not depend 
on the assignment that somebody else has given to me. I am approved and an image bearer of the most high God. So I don't really care what you think about this. God says it's good. See, that's that's freedom in the gospel because of the gospel of Christ. That's a freedom that I enjoy because of him, because of Christ. You know, they asked me, say, why weren't you so more disturbed by the Confederate flag? I said, because it's a piece of cloth. And there is no way in the world that I'm going to give a piece of cloth power in my life. That's going to catch up with you when you get home. See, freedom in Christ, a victorious Christ, destroys all symbols of oppression in my life. And it's not just, just racial issues, but anything that's oppressive to me is destroyed by my freedom in Jesus Christ because of his gospel. So, without a victorious Christ, there would be no cure. For the bondage that sin brings upon all of humanity. If we didn't have a victorious Christ, there would be no cure for sin. Without a victorious Christ, we would be left to feel and experience the pain of suffering for righteousness with no hope of a future with God. Imagine if you had to suffer the way you may suffer for righteousness and there was no hope. But there's hope because of a victorious Christ. The old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Hallelujah. Without a victorious Christ, the message of the gospel would be powerless and useless. It'd just be a story that happened. But because of a victorious Christ, there's power in the message and transformational power in the message of the gospel. Without a victorious Christ, people would have no reason to believe in a loving and all-powerful God. Without a victorious Christ, no believer could lay claim to the title of being an overcomer. We're overcomers because he overcame. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And because he overcame, we are overcomers. Whatever sin tries to do in your life, understand you are an overcomer. Yeah, you all get excited about that. That's for sure. That's a touchdown moment. So rest assured here, as we look at this, Peter speaks to the believers of his day and to each believer since, as well as current believers right now, we serve a victorious Christ. Victory is the key element to the truth of the gospel. The enemy has already lost and we already have the victory. Now, 
Some of you remain unconvinced. (laughs) But let me share this with you. If you think about those of you who played team sports, the coach would give this great pep talk and everything. And you go out there and you're just really, really going to sure you're going to win. And sometimes you would lose. But in our case. The word of God. Is the greatest pep talk ever. Because in this is a guarantee that even when we take the field and the opponent is bigger than us, looks stronger than us, might look like he's faster than us, but the bottom line is, is that our opponent has already lost because we have someone on our team that has already won the victory, Christ Jesus. Okay, so you, you don't have to take my word for it. Listen, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven says this. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has already given us the victory. 2 Corinthians 2 and 14 says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Look at that. That's a beautiful phrase. And he always leads us in triumphal procession. That means that means that what a glorious time it is to follow Christ, that everywhere we follow him, there is triumph. Triumph means victory. He always leads us in triumphal procession. And what a time it will be in in the last day when we gather around the throne of God. And in that great triumphal procession, that last triumphal procession, we will come in to the presence of God and we'll be singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He says this. He leads us in triumphal procession and through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Look at that. Fragrance of knowledge. Now, we hear knowledge. We speak knowledge. We read knowledge. We don't normally smell knowledge. Right? But Paul says here that knowledge is like this fragrance and, and what happens when you have a beautiful fragrance? You ever walked in somebody's home and they, they have the potpourri going and, 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 the, and all the fragrance and you just go, oh, it smells great in here. Immediately, you're taking it in and, and you can't even see it, but you know it's there. And that's how it is with the knowledge of Christ in our lives. Sometimes we may not be able to see it, but we have the beauty of the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And it gets all in our, in our lives. And we are able to know that I can, I can know that, that Christ is with me. I might not be able to touch it, but the fragrance of his presence is with me. And the knowledge of him everywhere. Now... In this text, we find a glorious representation and proclamation in 1 Peter 3 of a victorious Christ. While verse 19 and 20 present us with a degree of hermeneutical interpretive difficulty and challenge because it is not readily clear to whom Christ proclaimed. But we are sure of one thing. We are sure that Christ proclaimed. 
And we're sure of what he proclaimed. He he proclaimed victory over death, sin, and Satan. And this is the takeaway from this text. Now, we could labor long on debating the who. But let's not forget the importance of the what. Let's not forget the importance of the message that Christ proclaimed. Peter dares to share with us some important elements, and, 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 and I want to share them with you right now in this text that indicate we serve a victorious Christ. Here are five, five truths about Christ's victory. First of all, Christ's victory required unparalleled suffering. His victory required unparalleled suffering. There's no, no suffering. In verse 18, it says, for Christ also suffered. Once for sin. There's, there's no parallel to the suffering of Christ. And, and in our lives, the only thing we can really kind of connect to is the knowledge that great victories often come with great suffering. The World War II generation was called the greatest generation because of the suffering that they did on behalf of freedom, not just in America, but throughout the entire world. So, so there was great suffering. There was great loss of life. But, but through that great suffering came great victory. And when that, when that victory in Europe happened and the, and and the, and the Germans had, had uh, surrendered. Even though there was great suffering, people celebrated because they understood victory. And so in, in great suffering, often takes great suffering to have victory. So Christ's suffering was unparalleled. And then the other thing about Christ's suffering that, that it says here is that he suffered once for sin. This was a singular event. You don't have Jesus still dying on the cross right now. That's done. It's over. He died. He paid the price. He rose again. We don't have to look at a Savior suffering and dying on the cross. He has risen. Just like he said. Now, the second thing that we note here in this text is that Christ's victory came through an unjust means. Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, watch that. That is an unjust justification. In other words, he, the righteous Christ suffered for unrighteous. For while we were yet sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. We were the unrighteous. He is the righteous. The Bible says that God made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin. All of our sin was put on him. But he was innocent. There is no greater motivation when we are suffering for unrighteousness to remember the unrighteous suffering of Christ to remember how he suffered for unrighteous when when we are tempted to think that our suffering is so great that we don't know how we're going to make it think about his suffering and ask yourself this question am i suffering Because I'm innocent. I may be innocent of that situation, but I'm guilty of something. (laughs) Amen. I mean, I was born a sinner, 
The Bible tells me that. So I'm guilty. And then here's the other other thing I want to just throw in for free. There are some there are some suffering that comes in our lives that is not because of righteousness. Amen. Sometimes suffering comes because we have done something that is unrighteous and we've invited suffering in our life. It's kind of like a self-inflicted wound. And so here Christ died. He suffered for the he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. He was righteous, we were unrighteous. So it's an unjust justification. Now here's the the third thing that we see in this text. Christ's victory righted history's greatest wrong. Look at that next phrase, that he might bring us to God. When Adam was created in the garden, God could fellowship, could commensurate, could could talk to Adam, spend time with him. It was this great fellowship. God had said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And God wanted to spend time with man and have man loving him and him loving God. Sin destroyed that. Sin broke that fellowship, broke that connection. And it wasn't it was because God is so holy that he could not commensurate with that which became unholy. But thanks be to God that he didn't leave humanity in that situation. But he had already, the Bible says that that Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain from the foundation of the world. He had already made provision for our sin. But the greatest wrong in history was man and God being separated. And I'm going to tell you, if you're here today and you you think that because you came to church that somehow you're going to find God. Let me tell you something. You don't find God. He finds you. You can't get to him on your own. He has to bring you to him. And he brings you to him by the beauty of this message called the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when you hear it, when you hear what he has done, your heart begins to respond to that message. And you say, here am I, Lord. Here am I. Without one plea. I've come to you. And that's and that's. that is what Christ did. He brought us to God because we could not bring ourselves. And so the image bearers had been separated from their creator, but yet Christ brought them back together. The other thing here, Christ's victory provides certain assurance of our own triumph. If we go on and read, it says being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an assurance of victory. This means that we can be assured that whatever happens to our flesh in this world Because of a victorious Christ, we will live for eternity. That's a praiseworthy moment, isn't it? In fact, the gospel presence in our lives means we already have moved from death to life. 1 Corinthians 15 and 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive. Amen. Colossians 2 and 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. I'm so glad that all means all. All of my trespasses. All of my sin. God didn't leave not one sin unforgiven in the sacrifice and and the blood of Jesus Christ. All my sin has been forgiven. Now, in light of that, this begs the question that if we've already been delivered from the death of this world, why do we fight so hard for the things of this world? I'm going to let that marinate for a second. Why do we labor so hard for the things of this world? Why do we fight for the approval of other people when you've already, as a believer, been approved by the highest judge in the universe? Yeah, you've been approved because of Christ. And And so why do we have to keep fighting for material things? We've been approved. Finally, Christ's victory must be proclaimed to every facet of creation. Verse 22 says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, just as Jesus proclaimed his victory to the spirits in prison, how much more should we do so with our neighbors? And if you're going into all the world, start in your home. Your all the world begins there. Proclaim the victory of Christ in your home. If you have children that are, that are having difficulty, proclaim the victory of Christ in their lives. If you have family members that are, that are lost and unsaved, begin to pray for them and proclaim the victory in Christ over their lives so that they might too know the gospel of Jesus and be free. We must proclaim the truth that we serve a victorious Christ And we proclaim that truth because the Bible is very clear on this one. We proclaim the truth that he is victorious because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. It doesn't matter what people in the world think. Those who have rejected Christ, those who hate God, those who are who are uh, uh, those who are uh, working evil in all ways in our world. They, too, must one day proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and the people of God ought to be excited about the fact that they'll be proclaiming something we already know. That's right. Jesus is Lord. Every tongue shall confess. And we do this. Our motivation is not for our glory. But our motivation is for the glory of a risen Savior. Our motivation is is because of the fact that we know That truly there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and that sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all of their guilty stain. They lose all 
of their guilty stain. And, and let me tell you something, folks. If you're not broken over the sin of others, I would challenge you to think just how broken you are over your own sin. If you're not broken over what's going on in our world, then how broken are you over your own sin? Because I want to see people saved, and I know you do too. And we have to remind them that there is a fountain filled with blood. Would you pray with me today?